Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, because of your tender love toward us sinners, you have given us your Son, that believing in him we might have everlasting life. Continue to grant us your Holy Spirit, that we may remain steadfast in this faith to the end, and finally come to life everlasting, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. A couple quick reminder announcements. Church Family Sunday next Sunday. So one service next Sunday at 9.30, followed by fellowship and Bible class. Uh, there's a, a special hymn that, that uh, we're singing. The, it's a familiar text, but a different tune, a newer tune. Um, so there's a link in the week at a glance if you want to familiarize yourself with that. And um, we also strategically, so originally we were thinking maybe it would be a good closing hymn. But then the bad part is if you really don't like this hymn, then you walk out of church mad. And then you, the first person you talk to is me. And I don't want to talk to mad people. <laughs> So we put it at the beginning of the service, so you have plenty of time to forget. And like Cantor is going to play it like over and over and over and over again, the prelude. So it'll be hopefully somewhat familiar of a tune there. Um, the um, so and I made a quick note on music in general. So we think there's church music is not always. Old. So there's a different, we, we mark a clear difference, especially here at Bethany, where we're a distinctively liturgical congregation. We can mark a distinction between what's, what's typically known as contemporary worship and liturgical worship. That's a, that's a different conversation than new music, like new tunes, new texts, new arrangements of songs, um, and old arrangements of songs, right? So to be new isn't, is certainly not problematic. But we, we often rightfully like hesitate because especially as the church, the wisdom of our forefathers has been passed down to us is that um, things need to pass the test of time. And so we're, we don't quickly jump on new ideas, but there's like, there's time. We let, we let certain hymns or certain liturgies kind of stick with the church for a while. And over the course of time, certain, certain hymns, certain arrangements kind of stick with the church. And what marks truly great hymnody are, are hymns that are timeless. So there are some, if you ever, like you can, you can still find this, like I'm not sure if, how many arrangements made it into the, the um, LSB hymnal, but the LW certainly had traces of this where you could sing a hymn and you can kind of feel like you're singing, like, is this background music for the Reading Rainbow? Like, clearly, it's clearly 1980s-esque. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's time-bound. So that now when you, like, when you hear, like, 80s rock, you know it's 80s rock right now. You can hear, like, 90s grunge music, and you know it's 90s grunge music. You can hear 50s doo-wop music, and you know it's 50s doo-wop music, right? So the... The, ch the challenge of writing truly good hymnody is it's hymnody that is not, it doesn't sound old, nor does it sound new, but it sounds timeless. And the content of the hymn, that is the words that we sing, are also necessarily timeless. That's why when you know, we we're not singing about the current presidential uh, 
regime or, or current tragedies or current issues, right? Those don't make it in. There's like one hymn that does it stupidly. It's like, you often hear it at like, um, at graduations. Uh, Ms. Gebhardt's probably heard it a million times. Is there one line that's like, um, earth and all stars? Was that one, uh, where there's one stanza that's like, loud boiling test tubes. Loud boiling test tubes, sing to the Lord a new song. Loud boiling test tubes? You know, Martin Luther is like, what is that? That's not timeless. It's not a bad hymn. It's not a bad idea. But you, when you sing that, you're like, you take a step out of timelessness and into the 20th century, right? Um, so the hymns are trying to go at that. So don't, don't, be, don't be necessarily offended at new hymnody. The hymnal is, believe it or not, 20 years old already. It makes me feel old because that when, I, when I was starting as a baby pastor at the seminary, the hymnal was brand new. So like I started, started seminary the first day you get in the, and you, you pull the pew out of the, uh, you pull the hymnal out of the pew and you open it. It's got that sound, you know. Now you look at hymnals and they're like all like tattered and all the ribbons are all tattered and everything. Um, so yeah, there's probably going to be some, some new arrangements coming down that we try to work into our, into our mix. Again, not not, not not contemporary style, but just maybe fresher, newer hymns. They might be unfamiliar, and if they're rejected and no one likes them, then they'll die. That's what's nice about hymns. Um, If you haven't signed up for Picture Directory, please do. We're gonna get hard statistics on this. Beth's working on it, but the last time we did a directory, we hadn't like overhauled the the membership of the congregation yet. So we had people who were still in the rosters from the year two, the last time they worshiped was like August of 2001. And they're still on our books as members. So we had like, we boasted 1,600 members, but we obviously weren't worshiping that many people. But we only had like 100 people sign up to get their picture in the directory. So the percentage of members total to members who had their picture taken was very, very small. Now we trim the numbers way down of our actual members. And then of our membership, it's a lot of the same people. So we kind of, hopefully, people are going increasingly familiar with who, who's in our congregation. Not only that, but we've had like, I don't know, half again as much people sign up for the directory than last time around. So what that means is, whereas like we had less than 10% participation in the last directory, we're, we're already at like over 75% participation in the current directory. So if you haven't signed up, don't be that guy. Because you'll be like the one not pictured here, like just a blank picture there. So please try to to sign up for that. It's it's nice to let everyone know who you are. Um, Men's retreat coming up November 17 and 18. See more details for that in a week at a glance. Uh, There's a really cool conference coming up on Saturday. So this coming Saturday, November 4th in Lombard at the, I forget the Lutheran church's name, St. Timothy, I believe. And there's, there's information in the week at a glance. Pastor Wolf Mueller will be there as, as well as John Bombaro. Uh, it's like on a worldview conference, a lot of LGBT type agendas and how to confess truth into that. Um, is, that's going to be the, the theme of the conference. So you can, you can see information on the, in the week at a glance there. Uh, going leaf raking, November 11, Crafter's Paradise, November 11. And um, I think that's all. That's enough for now. Let's jump into our Bible study, please. Hopefully I can get to why I've got the guy from Sandlot on the back of our handout. Uh, I wanted to, I didn't have time to do this last week. So just a couple of quick closing remarks on, on the Lord's Supper. And, and one of the overarching themes 
of that kind of came out of the Reformation and the whole sacramental understanding um, that I think is, I teach at the Confirmation Kids, and it's really helpful for people who maybe have a confused understanding of why we have sacraments. I put it on there as a question on your handout, uh, just above the Jesus on the cross, the, the crucifix there. If the Lord's Supper forgives sins, well, does the Lord's Supper forgive sins? Yes or no? Does baptism forgive sins? Yes or no? Does baptism save though? Yeah? First Peter 3, baptism saves you. Well, okay, wait a second. If baptism saves and the Lord's Supper can forgive sins, then why did Jesus die? It seems like that's a pretty inconvenient thing to do if he could have just had baptism. Why didn't he just come to earth, institute baptism, and then bail? But he's like, but no, he's decided to be crucified as well. And by, by putting it, by creating that dichotomy, and dividing between the two events, we're losing what's happening in the sacraments. So we, can't, we don't think about the Lord's Supper as like a magical pill that forgives sins, like apart from the cross. In Luther's introduction to his Galatian, Galatians commentary, he says this most succinctly, that the forgiveness of sins was won on the cross, but it is not delivered there. So the distinction is made between won and delivered. So the salvation was won on the cross, is delivered however and wherever Jesus wants it delivered. If the gift isn't delivered, it doesn't do any good. So the analogy I use for the kids is always the same. You go to, you go to Target to buy a, a, a Christmas present for mom and you go get your $10 pair of earrings and you take it to the cash register and the, and the lady rings you up and charges you the money and puts it in a bag and hands you the bag. You've won, you've bought, you've purchased the earrings for mom. But have they done mom any good yet? No, they still have to be what? delivered. Um, and still, once they're delivered, seeing as who bought them, they're probably still not going to do her any good necessarily, but that's where the analogy breaks down. Um, the, the, so the salvation is won, purchased and won on the cross, but when and where it was actually purchased. So the picture, like I think Mel, Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ pictures it so well when they're, when they're whipping Jesus and, rip, and just blood is flying all over these guys. Not just on Jesus, because the whip is causing the blood to fly all over the guys who are doing the scourging. They are literally covered in the literal blood of Jesus. And they don't have the forgiveness of sins. See? Because the forgiveness of sins isn't being delivered in the, being, being sprayed by the actual blood of Jesus at his scourging. But the forgiveness of sins is delivered where Jesus is delivering the forgiveness of sins, you see? So the events are connected necessarily. Without the cross, the Lord's Supper and baptism are nothing. Without baptism and the Lord's Supper, the cross doesn't get delivered. Most importantly, without the word itself, the, the cross doesn't get delivered. So, so, so faith comes by hearing, right? And as Luther would even say in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are both nothing in and of themselves. So baptism is just, how can water do such great things? Well, it's not just water, it's the word. How can eating and drinking do such great things? Well, it's not eating and drinking, it's the 
word given and shed for you. So it's ultimately, it is the word of the cross. It doesn't do you any good if you don't hear the proclamation of the gospel. And when the proclamation of the gospel is tied to physical things, we have the sacraments. So a picture you often see in Reformation era art or also this uh, illegally copied one that you have before you uh, by Edward Riojas, who did the picture when you walk into the sanctuary on the immediate left. Um, this is more of a modern um, version of, of is this uh, Reformation era art where this often pictured of when John talks about when Jesus' side was pierced, blood and water came out which is actually a, a biologic or a, a medical, an actual thing that happens because there's water around the, around the heart. And so when it's punctured, water and blood would have come out. But the church has always seen that as this beautiful sim- symbolism of, the, of what Jesus is doing on the, on the cross is being poured out into the font and into the chalice, the water and the blood. And that's a helpful way to maybe think about it. So there's a couple quotes from Luther. I, I read in preparation for talking about this about a month ago now, I guess, but uh, uh, is Luther's, um, that these words, this is my body still stand. And he's writing in response to a lot of the modern day heresies in his time. But here's a couple quotes. The, the full Christ is given in the supper to all, just as the full Christ is delivered into the ears of all who hear the word, yet he remains also in heaven. So we confess the true bodily presence on the altar in front of us and the full bodily presence being delivered into your mouth while at the same time it's being delivered in the person next to you. And also Jesus is present in heaven wherever that is, fully and completely at the same time. So it's not like you're getting, you're getting you know, the elbow and the guy next to you is getting the pinky of Jesus. I mean, that's obviously a crass description, but that's, so we're not breaking him into pieces. It's the fullness delivered, just as the fullness of the gospel is proclaimed every time it's heard. This is, Luther's masterful in the way he talks about the incarnation. So that is when, when Christ enters into Mary. But here in B, Christ enters the bread just as he enters men through his word. So you would say, I'd say, is Christ with you? You'd say, yeah, is Christ in your heart? And you'd say, yeah. And I'd say, well, when, when, they, when they open up your heart to open heart surgery, is there a little Jesus comes jumping out? Obviously not. So what do we mean by Jesus is in me or with me, right? He said, or what do you mean he's in your heart? Well, it means he's, he's a part of me. He's joined himself to me. He's part of my He's, in, he's with my soul, right? He's with my person everywhere that I go. The full Jesus, the wholeness of Jesus has entered into me. And that's the same way that he enters the bread. So that little, that little wafer that we get for the Lord's Supper is filled up with the wholeness of the creator of heaven and earth. Is, is making himself delivered to us in this small means. Because it's about the word, not what we see, but what we hear. Mary became pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the word, just as bread is filled up with Christ by the Holy Spirit through the word. So the word doing the main thing and the word and and working with the Holy Spirit, filling up Mary and also filling up the bread. D, if the word is not there, it's just bread. When the word is added, it brings Jesus. And that gets a, a question that I didn't get around to answering because I had a couple people ask me later because I said when 
at what point does the bread become the body of Christ? And what I was getting at was, um, it is not when you receive it, but it's when the words are spoken. So like in the, um, in fact, last week, when we were setting up for communion or get, getting the right number of bread and stuff out, like I, I accidentally dropped one of the wafers in the ground and I didn't see it until later. But then like when afterwards we were cleaning up and the sacristans were like, do, does, do we eat, like, is this, do we eat this one? Can we throw it away? Is it consecrated? The question is, is it consecrated or not? We treat it differently. No, it was, it was in the sacristy. It fell down. It's not consecrated. Same with the wine that's in the sacristy. So you don't see that it's about the word, the word being spoken over the elements. And it's important that the person hear it because like when we, some, some churches practice, and I, I'm not a big fan of this because it detaches the word from the, the sacrament, but some churches will take the leftovers it's called the reliquy and put it in a, what's called a tabernacle, like a little box. And they'll take it to their shut-ins so that those who are unable to be in church with us, communing with us, can still commune from the same, the same communal experience that we all shared in. So it's not necessarily bad. The problem, though, is when I take it to the shut-ins, I'm not going to say the words of institution again. You don't re-consecrate it. But I guess I could say it again, but then what would be the point? What am, what am I saying those words for? So it just, it, it complicates it. So it's meant to be, it's meant to be happening all together. So whenever we give the Lord's Supper to shut-ins, we say the full, the full words of institution. And then whatever we have left over, we actually consume it. We treat it reverently because Jesus said, take, eat, not take home and put on your altar at home or on your, on your mantle at home next to your TV to make your house holier or something. That's not what it's meant for. It's not a lucky charm. It's meant to be uh, taken and eaten for the forgiveness of sins. We don't, uh, letter E, we don't speak the word to draw him down. This This is an interesting picture. We don't speak the word to draw him down, but the word is given to assure us that we may know that we shall certainly find him. So it's interesting. So it's not like God's in a way, you can say, yes, when we speak the words, we're, we're, we're putting Jesus in this bread. But that puts us in this position of control and like Jesus is waiting for us. And that's not the idea either. Jesus has told us that when his words are spoken into this gift, he's making himself known for us. So for our certainty. So we're not calling, we're not calling God down like he's some deity that we're in control of. But rather, when we speak his words in this context... He has given us the certainty of his presence among us. He remains God, and we're not, we're not telling him what to do or where to go, um, but he's just giving us certainty of where he is. And that's kind of tied to the next one, that he is present everywhere, but he does not wish to be sought apart from his word. For example, he is in the fire, but don't jump into the fire looking for him. It's classic Luther. Like he always gives these great pictures. God is omnipresent everywhere, present everywhere at the same time, and yet he doesn't wish to be found in these places, certainly not according to his mercy. So you can go to the bottom of the ocean and Jesus is there, but he's not there for you in mercy to forgive your sins. You can go to the top of a mountain in the afternoon when the lightning storms are always killing tourists, then that's the power of God is present there, but you're not finding God according to his mercy. He wants to be found in his mercy wherever he places himself. 
And letter G, the supper individualizes the forgiveness which, he, which the preached word proclaims generally. So the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed like to everyone at the altar is put specifically into your, into your mouth. It makes the sermon our own. Preaching is for all. The supper is only for Christians. So the, 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 it is the preached word that actually brings the Christian conversion about. And though having been converted into the faith, the Christian then receives the, the gift there. So that's just a few, I thought, helpful quotes from what I had like starred multiple times in my Luther's works. Any, any final wrap-up questions or lingering questions on the Lord's Supper before we move on to the next section? I know there's a lot of things we could talk about, a lot of things we did talk about. Nope. All right. So flip over your handout. We'll get to the great Hambino, as he is known. And, and then we're looking at verse of Luke 22, beginning with verse 24. I'll read it through. Um, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the, king of, the kings of the Gentiles ex- exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right, so let's back up to 24. Remember the context. We are in Good Friday. So at sunset, before they even started eating the Passover meal that night, before the, the, the Lord's Supper was instituted, it is technically Good Friday. We often celebrate, the, we remember the institution of the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday, because we are, our, account, our account of days is different than the Jewish, remember the Jewish understanding was as soon as the sun sets, it starts the next day. So this is technically Good Friday, and John accounts uh, the, this is where they've got the, the um, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and he teaches on this lowly service. It's not recounted in Luke, but we know that's happening in the same context. And this is not the first time Jesus has talked about this. When Jesus came off the mountain of transfiguration, remember he's, he, in Luke, back in Luke 9 that we talked about in 2020, um, J- Jesus comes off the mountain of transfiguration. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Remember, he, come, he doesn't come off the mountain of transfiguration alone. Who's with him? Peter, James, and John. Which kind of start the guys started thinking, well, who's they must be they must be like top tier disciples. Who's the greatest? And so they're arguing back then, and that's when Jesus famously took the child and put the child in the midst of them and said, You must become like this child. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like this child. That was Luke 9, and here we are multiple chapters later. And the same thing on the night in which he was betrayed. In fact, hours before he's handed over into prison and would die, the disciples are still not getting it. So a dispute also arose. So that's why I put, you're killing me, Smalls. Like Jesus has to be thinking, how do you not get it? A dispute. The word here for dispute 
is uh, Philo Nico. So it's an interesting combination. So Philo, so like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So philos is the Greek for love. But then Nico is the word for fight or conquer. So hence Nike, like with the shoe. And, so the idea from conquering and victory. So this, this is like a love fight. It's a weird, a weird way to put it. This love fight broke out among the disciples. I always picture it as like this passive aggressive. They're, they're really like angry or they're frustrated or they're selfish or jealous, but they're trying to look nice because they are with Jesus after all. And they know, I mean, they've been with him for three years. By now they kind of picked up, but they're supposed to be nice, but maybe they're just not doing it very well. They're disputing this over which is to be regarded as the greatest. And he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. One, one question I there on your handout, the disciples argue again about who is the greatest. How are the disciples still missing this? But how do we encounter the same pride among ourselves? So the disciples, as we're reading the New Testament, they're like, Jesus has already told you this. Come on, guys, you're killing me, smalls. But then when we reflect on our own experience, we're in fact no different. In fact, we're even, we're even guiltier because the disciples, in their defense, they have, they're still expecting Jesus to be acting as a Messiah in power. They're still working all that out. We know the end of the story. We have the benefit of reading the Old Testament with clear connections to the New Testament. We have the, we have the benefit of Paul unfolding all these things for us at length in, in the, the epistles. And yet, knowing these things... We, we still embrace our idols of self, our, our thirst for, like, to, to build up our pride, to increase our reputation. We're concerned about what other people think about us and want to approve it. We tear other people down. We gossip for whatever reason, often to raise ourselves up in comparison. And yet we know. And yet we know. So, that's the, so in that way, we see ourselves in the disciples and they've just received the Lord's Supper. Lest we think we're better than them when you, when you like, and I've heard this before, like people, they come to church and they go about their day. And then like, if someone, it's like immediately after church, some, some dispute happens. Or we have a voters assembly. <laughs> and some, in any kind of situation in which there's like sinfulness occurring, which by the way is going to be anytime two people get together anywhere, some kind of sin manifest. And then, but the, there's, a, there's a little hypocrite, uh, hypocrite in us that says, come on, you, you were just at church. You shouldn't be sinning. I mean, it's nice for us to have that expectation. But if you like, a person can walk away from the Christian faith and say, I just got sick of these hypocritical Christians because they would go to church, they confess their sins, and they'd immediately go back into their sin. Now, you can't get mad at Jesus for that. You, you can't, I used an analogy yesterday. It's like you can't, you, you don't, you don't, it's not Beethoven's fault that somebody played Beethoven poorly, right? So Jesus is giving us the forgiveness of sins and then sinners just take it up and just abuse it right and left. But don't walk away from Jesus because Christians are sinful. It's in fact the sinful Christians that's a, it's the reason why Jesus died. So we have this unfortunate expectation of sin among us, even especially 
like the disciples after receiving the Lord's Supper. They receive the Lord's Supper of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He washes their feet and teaches them to love one another in the same way, and they start fighting over who's more important. And we see it in ourselves. So let us not... Let, let us use this as, a, as law to, turn, to see in ourselves our thirst for pride and our, and our being turned back to Jesus for forgiveness, that he would, that he would deign to save sinners such as, such as me and protect me from the pride of judging others. Uh, all right. So uh, they're fighting over who is the greatest. And he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So in contrast to this overness, which he uses twice, this is, we're, we're making a distinction between over and under. To the world, the great are to be served by others. And that's even the picture he gives here. Who, who reclines at table? And the guy, the way, remember the way that they would eat in that context the person who's being served, but like you don't go to a restaurant and then ask the waiter to sit down and then you serve the waiter. That's not how it works. So the waiter is there to serve, to serve you. So Jesus is contrasting the life of the disciple to those who would see, Lord, especially this word leadership or lordship within the church as those who are over so what way, my question on your handout and from verse 26, in what way are the greatest to become as the youngest? What does that mean? How does, how does the greatest become the youngest? And obviously, like Nicodemus half-jokingly says to Jesus, how can I enter, in, enter again into my mother's womb? Obviously, it's not what he's getting. So he's not asking you to go the way of, um, what's that guy's name? Benjamin Button? Benjamin Button, who lives backwards. Isn't that also the name of the rabbit in the... Benjamin Bunny is different than... Okay. <laughs> Reading too many kids' books lately. Um, so what way... What, what are, what's the characteristic that Jesus is getting at? Why does he t- what is he tying to, to youthfulness? Young. The youngest. What is it? Innocence. Well, so in contrast here to this, to this lordship over others, and especially the, what's the problem he's getting after with the disciples? What's their error here? Pride. So what's the opposite of pride? Humility. humility. Now, is, so when you think, when you contemplate the humility of a child, it is not, I would say not always, but... It's, it's usually not a, not a humility that they themselves practice. But it's an actual humility. Like this little one over here that I'm not going to say her name because then she'll look over here and come running over here. Like she, she doesn't have humility. Everything is mine. I can do it. No, I can do it, Dad. I can, today with those tights on her pants, it took forever to get on. She kept saying mine. She, she could not do it. I had to do it. She's kicking me in the face the whole time. The humility was, was the, the actual inability, the actual, the actual lowliness in spite of what I might think about myself. And so the Christian is called to both. We actually have 
actual humility that we can't save ourselves. But, but we're given, it's not just lip service in my humility, but we, we do actually confess that we are to be humble, to see others as more important than ourselves. To, that all that we have comes to us by way of gift, to love others more than ourselves but then also to recognize our complete dependence upon others, specifically God, right? That's the humility of the, of the youth that sees, the go, so the, as the disciple then in this context, there's, there's to be seeing everybody else, everybody else as, as greater. Because as, as a child, imagine what a two-year-old, as they look around this room coming in here like, well, we're all just kind of walking around and we don't even see them. And they're just looking up at all these people and they're just trying to get through. The humility of the child is to be feeling almost insignificant. Everybody in here is so much more important than me, not just with our lips, but then actually the way, the way that we're to live our life is to others, others are greater than me and that I am nothing in myself. That's humility. So to be, for the greatest, the greatest to become like that. The leader becomes one who serves. Verse 26, what characteristics and attributes does our world expect of its successful leaders? What does it take? What does it take to be a good leader? So when you picture, even even in bad situations, Mussolini, Hitler. So they're, they're terrible men but great leaders. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been as effective as they were, right? Uh, who are some of the, the awesome generals? Um, Patton. So in a worldly way, what makes, what makes a great leader? Power. Like in Patton, there's some great scenes in the movie where like, when, so he's like, they're fighting a war and then the, the guys, some of the guys are like being cowards. Or even like, there's a scene in uh, The Patriot, Mel Gibson. Two Mel Gibson references in one Bible study. Mel Gibson is the Patriot when they're like, I forget the, which, which battle it was. And they're, they're, they seem to be losing the battle against the British. And the guys are all starting to retreat. And he sees the guy with the flag starting to kind of like run and turn with the flag. And Mel Gibson comes running up and he grabs the flag and he just charges. And everybody sees him. And they start charging in. Very, very powerful moment of that, of that movie, right? So he's the one who charges into battle in strength and leads the way with power that everybody looks to and draws power from. That's, that's successful. When we think about that word leader, there's lots of different books on leadership out there. I have the picture of the 10 principles of servant leadership. Servant leadership is this Fun word that I'm going to make fun of a lot here in a second. But first, let me, let me go after. Um, so number three, sub, sub point A, further sub point, little I. I don't know how you call that. But when we think about the world in Marxist categories, I don't know, how did he get there? Well, I'll tell you. Since the times of Hegel, so think, think back into the 18, 1800s, there's this thing called the Hegelian... Uh, I shouldn't start there. Evolutionism. Everyone gets it. You get evolutionism, right? Natural selection, the survival of the fittest. All of everyone, everyone who's living is in some kind of a struggle for survival. And it is the struggle for survival that makes us better. 
That's how natural selection works. That's how evolution drives history forward. So that was Darwin attaching the Hegelian dialectic, it's called, to biology. Hegel's dialectic is this philosophical term from, I think, the 1700s. It's basically that there's two forces. There's always, in all of history, since there's no creator, by the way, all of history can be seen as two opposing forces, a a thesis and an antithesis that are struggling against one another. And then from that struggle comes a synthesis, a new future, a new conclusion that's better than both that preceded it. And that drives evolution or, or drives humanity and history forward to a new state. But that new state always finds something else to struggle against. So the new synthesis becomes a thesis that has a new antithesis, antithesis, that struggle. And that way, that's a weird philosophical background there, but all of history is seen through this lens of struggle. Everybody is a victim and an oppressor. Bourgeoisie proletariat. So Marx takes up the same idea and applies it to economics. But it's all coming out of this, it's called Hegel's dialectic and philosophy that sees all of history being driven forward by a struggle. Now, obviously the Christian faith, and as we learn it from the scriptures, that's not going on at all. But in our, built into our like, human experience in the 21st century, is an, we, kind of, we, we see a lot of this happening around us with people being identified as, as oppressors, people trying to identify with groups. So their identity is not in their personhood, but because I'm, a, I'm associated with a particular class or race or economic status, or sexual affiliation. So, so it's all about who I identify with as where I get my power. I get my strength by being a part of a collective. That's, that's now, the, it's, it's so rampant now, you, don't, you probably don't even think about it. Well, as this, as this uh, concept is driving forward, we see, when you go back and read history, you have people talking about things as movements. Now, a, a movement, if someone describes, let's say, the Protestant Reformation as a movement, or the civil rights movement. So let's go with civil rights. It's the civil rights movement. So in what way is it a movement? When something is moving, what questions come up? Move where? From where? So, and what, so we can make that conclusion, the civil rights, in what way is the civil rights movement a movement? So from some sort of like this, this, this racism that's being wrapped up into policy in a very badly way where people are de- being dehumanized because of their race, that's not good. So we wanna move away from that and toward seeing one another as fully human. We can see that. But in the movement, so thinking back to the Hegel dialectic where you've got two things, a thesis and antithesis, intention, fighting against one another. It means that there's a struggle and one party wins, right? Which means somebody is crushed. So in the case of civil rights, it's, we, so the racists are, the, the, the concept of racism in public policy is, is theoretically smashed and then a new synthesis emerges. Right? So in that way, that's the movement 
Think about it like a tank. Like uh, when you see the tank, it doesn't have wheels, it has, what do you call that? A tread? So as the tread is plowing forward, it just crushes everything in its path, and it's by crushing it that it actually moves forward, right? So in that way, that's what movements are in history. It's moving in opposition to something else and crushing it. Movements are the, when it comes to people, are masses of people who find their power from one another. But they, there's too many voices. Voices have a, a collective unified representative called, in the German, a Führer. It's called, the historians call this the Führer principle. So the Adolf Hitler, for example, wasn't, it wasn't that he was a great leader running the German people, that he inspired this problem amongst the German people, but rather the German people themselves collectively had this momentum and this movement and they had this whole point of view. And he was simply the the necessary outgrowth fruit and who spoke on behalf of that movement. So in the Fuhrer principle, you're not allowed to distinguish between the voice of Hitler and the voice of the entire Nazi regime. You can't distinguish between the voice of the lead, the Fuhrer, and all of the people. So the leader is simply the the, um, distilled voice of the powerful movement. And that's why, in our understanding, when we we hear the word leader, which comes from the the German concept of Fuhrer, is a, a distilled, most powerful person representing the view of this entire group. That it is kind of leading the group forward, but it's also coming from that group itself. Now, I want to make that, I want to lay that out first because sometimes you'll hear the church described as a movement. And that is bad. The church is not a movement. Now, when people call the church a movement, it, to put the best instruction on it, what they're trying to say is, we don't want to be stagnant. Christians should not be just content to sit in their lazy boys, but you need to be out loving your neighbor in some way, doing something, spreading the gospel, serve your neighbor, love your neighbor, that kind of that idea of the church getting out of its, stop, stop looking at itself and get out and serve the community, right? This is not a bad idea, but that's not what the word movement means. That just means be more active in your community. Just say that, if that's what you mean. But movement has, has all these implications that you're moving against something and crushing it. That's not what Jesus, that's not the leader that Jesus is after here. Jesus is after a leader who serves. When Jesus is most winning, what is he doing? Dying. See how he flips everything upside down from our concept of leader. Now this has... So so the contrast here is servant who comes in humility and weakness and gives gifts, primarily the gift of self-sacrifice. While well-meaning, why is the concept of servant leader a self-refuting term? Now we all know what we're getting at. When, when, so like every, like when I was at Concordia, it's the big thing and every Concordia and and our thing and our, our, our like a, policy here like you just you can't get away from using it because what we're all trying to recognize is we 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 recognize the the um the 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 virtue or the the goodness of being a leader but we also recognize that as christians we're given to serve jesus himself says it many times so we're trying to hold these two things together 
but it doesn't work. It's a, they're contrary terms. You cannot be a leader in the way that what our, what our word leader means, fear of a movement, you cannot simultaneously be a leader and a servant. It doesn't mean all leaders are necessarily bad, and it doesn't mean that good leaders don't have some qualities that are common with servants, but the concept of servant leader, they're, 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 they're opposites. You can't hold them together. Um, that matters most because, as I want to have a number five. Well, quickly, number four, how does Jesus serve us? Well, what, how does Jesus serve us? By dying for us, giving himself for us. And then even now, and, and on Sunday morning, we call it the divine service. We don't come here to serve God, but he is divine. We're not divine. He's divine, and he serves us with his life-giving body and blood, right? So we come to receive from him both by what he gives us on the cross and then what he delivers to us still today. But this, this distinction in servant leader, kind of the climax of what I'm gonna to get to today at number five, are pastors who are set to be under shepherds of Jesus, are they given by Jesus to be leaders or servants? Yes. <laughs> by Jesus. So there's a distinction between what Jesus gives and what what is, what is like just a necessary evil of, of having a church in this world. But also, unfortunately, what we see when the church becomes increasingly secularized, we see a departure of the pastoral office. I guess my, my question there, what would it look like if a pastor became a leader instead of a servant? Uh, Andy Stanley, I found two really good quotes. Andy, Andy Stanley and Rick Warren, both big names in, in like evangelicalism, both said that they pastored has to get away from the idea of being a shepherd and a servant and has to see himself as a leader among leaders because that's the concept of the, the, of the, con the concept of the church today. We have to see ourselves as leading a movement. Rick Warren called, said leading a movement, which is a different picture of what Jesus gives. But we can see the attraction because especially as the church transitions from a couple of people getting together in hiding in fear of persecution, uh, baptizing a baby and hearing the gospel, or a couple of people getting together and talking about the teaching of the apostles, having the Lord's Supper. And that starts to change to now we're building a building. We have tax exempt status. We have 401k plans and health insurance and electric bills. And all of a sudden we've got all this bureaucracy necessary. It's necessary. And it's, we, to be, to be, we benefit from it, but it starts to necessitate somebody that ha actually has to run this, right? And who's it gonna be? Well, since it's a church, it makes sense for it to be the pastor, but all of a sudden we're starting to blend what the, an office that's first and foremost given to be a servant with, with these leadership skills. So like I, I, when, I got, when, I, when I got my doctorate, I got it in, leadership because <laughs> you have one of these you have you know, a few areas you could get it in and one of them was was leadership and i wrote one of my big papers on why pastors are not leaders and they still gave me the doctorate even though i made fun of the degree <laughs> but the uh but that's the idea so at, at the very least the counsel that i give that, that i've been given myself and i and i and i continue to share with other pastors is that we we're trying we have to constantly hold hold the tension 
being mindful of what Jesus has given us to be as servants in the office, and that is the main thing. Um, but then also that all of the stuff that we do by way of earthly leadership, CEO type stuff, like when, hey, we got to do a capital campaign to raise some money. Well, pastor, you got to go talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to do that stuff. That's not being a servant. Well, somebody's got to do it. Who's going to do it? We pay you full time, buddy. You got to do it. it. So you have this, but all of that, all of that secular stuff is always done in service, in service to, in a, in a, so ministerial, in service to the main thing. So the best pastoral leadership books that are out there talk about, yeah, we had to have a meeting. Yeah, we got to have boards. Yeah, we got to do these things. And yeah, pastors are often stuck in a leadership, a quote, leadership position there. But you always have to push against the expectation of the world. In fact, especially in Naperville. So we have like, we're blessed with so many very successful, like executive type people. Like so many, so many people in our congregation are, find themselves in very high positions of stressful meetings and, and leadership positions. And they're all having to go to like seminars on leadership and they're having to read all these books on leadership and all this kind of stuff. So it makes sense when you come to church to kind of bring those same expectations with you into the board meetings of a church because you know how to run a successful meeting in your high rise in Chicago or whatever, right? So that, but we, we're pushing against that. Because we, we are not, we are, we are not going to let ourselves be a movement and we're not a business. So we're not looking at leadership in the same way. But we also recognize, okay, we also like to have efficient meetings because we don't want to waste everybody's time. So we, okay, we're going to have some of this leadership principles coming in. But we're, we're making sure that it doesn't ever overwhelm what the pastor is specifically given to do as a servant. Does that make sense? Any ideas or thoughts on that? So am I just confessing to you the struggle of being a, quote, senior pastor? <laughs> um, the, but so we, we, we have to be clear on the church. So if we walk away, so we'll, we'll finish there. We've got to get to the service. But um, some walk away principles for you today is that the, the church is not a movement. The church is a confession. It's a confession of a man. God became flesh in the person of Jesus who died. That's a confession. It's a living, active word. So we confess the gospel and God does stuff with it. And since we rejoice in that gospel together, we get together and receive the Lord's gifts. But the church is in a movement because we're not going around crushing anyone. Jesus does the crushing on the cross. That's already done. So movements, the tank crushing stuff isn't happening with the church. If anybody gets crushed, it is us, right? Self-sacrifice, that's service. And that's how we're given to live our lives as Christians in this world. And it's seen most clearly when we forgive each other's sins and when we ask forgiveness from one another. Because you don't do that from a position of power. Watch the Godfather, the, the most powerful person is the Godfather himself. You never see him apologizing to anyone. It's a really happy marriage they have there in the Godfather. Right? No one, no one is ever coming in weakness. But the Christian is given to come in weakness, which means to say, I'm sorry. That's coming in weakness and humility, making myself vulnerable to you. I'm sorry. And then you to forgive. To forgive is to admit that you've been hurt, which is also a sign of weakness. 
So the conversation amongst Christians is one of, I am sorry and I forgive you. This rhythm is one of weakness and, and humility that sees the other as more important. And it flows from the way Jesus has spoken to us. He's come to us in weakness and he forgives us. Good enough? All right, we're at, we're at time. Uh, the Lord be with you.